Hey folks, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and today we got another great episode lined up for you guys, uh, particularly those of you who plant food plots. We're going to be talking to Mark Turner, a PhD candidate at the University of Tennessee who works under Dr. Craig Harper, that I know a lot of you guys are familiar with Craig, but we're going to be talking with Mark about some of the studies he's been involved in centered around food plots, and Mark is going to bust a couple of uh, big food plot myths that many of you have probably heard most of your life. Uh, I know I have, so I, I was pretty uh, excited to, to get on the phone with Mark and talk to him about you know some of this research that he, he's been able to be involved in. Uh, just some really cool stuff I know you guys are going to enjoy. So stick around for that. Uh, but before we jump on the phone with Mark, there's a few housekeeping items that we need to take care of. First off, this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast is brought to you by our friends at Analogics. Uh, Analogics is a longtime NDA corporate partner. And we figured, hey, since this episode is centered around food plots and it's getting that time of year where a lot of you are planning your fall and winter food plots, we would just go ahead and, and promote their Crush series of food plot blends uh, endorsed by Lee and Tiffany Lukoski, uh, hence the name Crush. But they offer a wide variety of clover and brassica mixes uh, that are perfect for planting this time of year. So be sure to check those guys out at analogics.com. Also want to give a big thanks to all of you who have subscribed to the podcast. Uh, those of you who have left a rating or a review on Apple Podcast. Uh, we finally got our first written review, which I'm going to read here from Polk23. That's P-O-L-K-E 23 titled Awesome. And his review reads, great podcast, been waiting up for an NDA podcast, and I wasn't disappointed. So thanks so much for the kind words there, Polk. Uh, we appreciate that. Uh, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, hey, take just a second, drop us a five-star rating. Uh, we, would, we would certainly appreciate that. And if you have a minute, leave us a written review. Let us know what you like about the podcast. Um, you know, if you want to suggest a guest or a topic, you're certainly welcome to do that as well. And uh, we may just read it here on the podcast if, if you do. So take a few minutes to do that for us. And hey, as a token of our appreciation for all the new listeners, we still have our special podcast membership offer. Uh, several of you have taken advantage of that. And uh, again, we appreciate that support joining us here at the National Deer Association. Um, and all you have to do is head over to our website at deerassociation.com. Hit that join or renew link. Use the promo code podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. It doesn't matter if it's uppercase, lowercase, either one should work. But that's going to knock $5 off the annual membership fee. And you're also going to get a free NDA cap as well. So a, a great deal there uh, just for supporting the podcast here. So I hope hopefully some of you guys will take advantage of that. Hey, if you're already a member, you can still use that offer It'll just add one year on to your existing membership. So don't worry, you know, if you just joined a, a few weeks ago or a month ago, hey, you can still take advantage of that offer, uh, get a discount, get a free cap, and we'll just tack a year on your membership deadline there. So don't worry about that. And I think with that, we're going to jump on the phone here with Mark Turner and dive into some of his food plot research. All right, guys, I got Mark Turner on the line. Mark, how you doing? Doing great. Just uh, wrapping up another field season of uh, data collection on some some deer related topics that'll probably be of interest to to listeners. And uh, it's just a just another hot day in July, so definitely don't mind sitting in the AC for a little while and talking about deer management. <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding there, man. It has been just miserably hot and humid the last I don't know week or so around here at least. Um, I got. Got some food plot work I want to be doing, some some cameras I want to be getting out, but uh, that, that's going to have to wait till at least next week. I think there's it looks like there's a little bit of relief in sight for next week, so I hope that's the case. If if you're not getting stuff knocked out in the first you know two or three hours of daylight here, it's just uh, you're in for a miserable miserable time. Absolutely, yeah. Like I say, it's uh it's about that time of year though that uh, deer season's coming up, so. It's kind of brutal now, but luckily we've only got another month and a half and, and we'll be in the heat, in the midst of it in a lot of states at least. Oh, yeah. Speak, speaking of, are you uh, are you ready? Are you prepared for deer season? <laughs> I, I think so. I've uh, been been shooting a lot and, uh, and that's been that's been good. Shoot my bow a lot. Um, got my rifle ready. 
uh, got a bunch of food plots that need to be worked on and planted and so on and so forth. But uh, got a few bucks on my family farm in North Carolina that are they're looking pretty good. So uh, I don't know if I'm ready or not, but I'm <laughs> I'm ready for it to be here. If, oh, if yeah. nothing else. Yeah, that, that's pretty much pretty much where I'm at. Uh, now was 2020 was that your first deer season in Tennessee? It was. It was. Okay. How, so before that, it, I was living in Alabama. So right. How'd that go for you? How'd that first season go? In it it went state? pretty well. Yeah. So I was able to uh, actually take a couple does and uh, took one buck that um, I think he was three and a half on a uh, quota hunt on some public land. So um, that's that was pretty neat. Um, also got one on my family farm in North Carolina. So um, as always, filled the freezer up with some dough meat and uh, <laughs> took a few bucks too. So definitely uh, no complaints there from my end. But uh, yeah, Tennessee's uh, it's a lot different than Alabama though because I'm back to hunting at, hunting the rut in November with the rest of the country. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I, I do kind of yeah. miss in January though. It's it's funny. It I was jealous in Alabama whenever you know folks in the rest of the country we're talking about november but man i was sitting here talking to some buddies in alabama in december january and february that were chasing rut and bucks and i was <laughs> ready to get back down there and get after them with them yeah that, that is a pretty cool opportunity to to be able to hit it that late when most people are hanging hanging their gear up for the season you know Absolutely. alabama and some of the other southern states is just getting prime so yeah that's that's pretty wild now i know some of the folks that may not know you, but you and, a, and another biologist, uh, Mariah Boggess, had a had a podcast for a while, Hunt the Land podcast, and which I always enjoyed listening to. But but you guys had a little uh, friendly competition going on. It was a, a little a little different, a little unique, I guess. Uh, <laughs> can, can you tell the listeners a little bit about the the tree slam and, and is <laughs> yeah. that is that still going on or did yeah? So so we still keep track of it. And in fact, last year I had one of my best years yet, and I think I picked up maybe three or four different species uh, with different deer that I was able to harvest. But a few years back, we started messing around with uh, just kind of keeping track of the trees that we killed different deer in. Um, so, and, and it especially is applicable for guys that are hunting on public land where you may be sitting a bunch of different trees, but even, even for guys that hunt on private land, it's kind of just a, just a fun little thing. And, um, and especially when it comes to some of the more quote unquote rare species that, most people may not hunt out of like a couple of years ago. Um, I was able to kill a deer, uh, in Alabama out of a water oak, which obviously is not atypical that far South, but it was kind of nice for me, you know, to have that on my list and think back on when I was hunting in Alabama, especially in you know December and January, you could hunt deer that were targeting those acorns. So it's kind of, kind of funny. And especially for a guy that uh, moves around a lot and, um, has hunted a lot of different places. It's it's funny to just remember back on different places that I've hunted and the tree species that were there. Yeah, now, now of course, you're in uh, East Tennessee now, so you might have be able to pick up some different mountain species there. And Mariah's Absolutely. up in Indiana, so he's he's going to probably be able to pick up some different ones too. But that's uh, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Just yeah, another. I need to uh, need to pick up in the area that i'm in i think this year might, might try to pick up like a white pine and maybe uh maybe even try to get a hemlock there's some places that i hunt that I have a bunch of hemlocks still so um those are two that i'm going to be eyeing whenever i have a stand on my back walking into the <laughs> public <laughs> well I, I gotta admit now i haven't gone as far as is starting to to document the ones i've hunted out of but I, I do pay more attention now i think about you guys got me thinking about it you know whenever i'm picking out a tree i'm kind of thinking oh you know have, have i hunted out of one of these before <laughs> absolutely so, yeah it's yeah, another just um, another element to add to your hunt i guess yeah and it's it's funny um now i whenever I, I if i text mariah a picture or something of a deer that i've killed i'll tell him which one i killed it out of like uh the last deer i killed in alabama was a buck that actually grunted in and i shot him out of a sweet bay um which is not typically actually a tree it's usually more of a shrub but this one was pretty large and so <laughs> i hung up in it i mean i wasn't super high up in it but it was the best tree given the wind so um made a fun little <laughs> added element to the hunt but uh yeah still still keeping track of that and there you go well i'll be i'll be uh keeping track we'll see how who, who's uh who's on top right now do it do you know or i think we got to be pretty close to tide mariah yeah. had some ground on me for a while but um, my last year in alabama and then this first year in tennessee i picked up several different species that were 
And some of them were kind of easy and simple. Like I picked up a, a red maple. You would think I would have killed one out of a red maple by now, but I just had not. So um, picked up a few the last few years. So I think we're pretty close to tied right now. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see who can pick up some more this year. There you go. Well, before we get too too far into the podcast, can you tell the folks just a, a little bit about yourself and and kind of uh, how you've been able to to be involved in so much cool uh, habitat and, and food plot research, which is you know what we're gonna what we're going to dive into here shortly. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like I kind of mentioned before, I grew up in North Carolina and uh, went to NC State for wildlife biology, but just had a lot of interest, um, obviously, in game species, especially deer, um, and was lucky enough that my family actually has a farm that's very close to the campus in Raleigh. And so during my high school years and then especially during my college years, I spent a lot of time doing habitat management on our farm. So um, things like food plots, prescribed burning, and uh, forest stand improvement, all sorts of things that I kind of learned, you know, while I was learning in class about these things, I was also learning about them um, on our farm, you know, and, and actually applying those things that I was learning. From there, I actually went and uh, worked some technician jobs and actually was connected to do some habitat management um, research. Um, actually on a WMA that's near here that I actually now hunt turkeys on, believe it or not. <laughs> but um, <laughs> just so things kind of come around. But uh, so I worked up there for a while and ended up deciding, you know, I really am interested in this habitat management thing because it's obvious that, you know, habitat is what drives populations of species and also size of species. So if you want more deer, bigger deer, more turkeys, et cetera, et cetera, really it all starts with habitat management. And so that took me down the path of wanting to go ahead and get more education, get my master's. And I was fortunate enough to end up at Auburn University for three years working under Dr. Will Goolsby. And there we were doing some work with forest stand improvement and prescribed fire in um, coastal plain hardwood systems, which is not really an area that you think about using fire. Most folks down there just think about burning in their ponds. Um, but we we're actually applying fire to some of these systems that had upland species like white oak, but also some species you might think not think could tolerate fire like water oak. And um, during that course of time, uh, Dr. Craig Harper at the University of Tennessee was involved in that research. Um, he was on my committee. And so just through some conversation with him, just uh, was able to um, kind of make the decision that I wanted to go on and continue doing more of this research and uh, continue, you know, getting some more education on things. And so now I'm at UT Knoxville um, working under Dr. Craig Harper on a project, essentially looking at deer forage availability and morphometrics, which is antler size and body weight, um, are the two things that we're most interested in of deer across pretty much every state in the Eastern U.S. So we're looking right now at about 26 different states. Um, and so I'm basically traveling around and, um, actually, uh, NDA was able to help out with securing a lot of those sites. Um, a while back, we did a survey to deer steward. Um, to um, people that had completed Deer Steward 2. And so I definitely appreciate y'all's help with that. And uh, so just kind of continued down this path of looking at habitat management. But now my work is um, essentially trying to tie forage availability from habitat management as well as just forage that's naturally there, agriculture and so on and so forth. It's on these different properties to the size of the deer that are there. So um, really all the stuff I've been involved in has really you know, been very strongly habitat associated and, and I really enjoy that sort of work. Yeah, that's, that's some, absolutely some cool stuff there. Just, uh, living the dream, man. <laughs> just, yeah. So a lot of, a lot of times in the middle of the summer, whenever I'm sitting there, you know, and <laughs> whether it's, you know, Mississippi or this week I was actually up in Pennsylvania and it's just hot and it's the middle of the day and I'm sitting there after picking the 50th plant, you know, to figure out forage availability and quality for deer it's very easy to sit there and shake your head and, you know, <laughs> gripe about it when I could be sitting in the AC, you know, making a lot more money than I am now. But you know what? At the end of the day, um, getting to getting to think about deer all, all the time is really, really not a bad way to make a living. And so I'm no. very blessed to have kind of found a niche in that and um, been able to work with the people that I work with now is just uh, just incredible. So I've really enjoyed it. Well, obviously. You know, there's a lot of different topics we could dive into just from from what you said there, things that you've been involved in. But what we really what I wanted to get you on for this particular episode was mainly kind of food plot centric, since uh, if everything works out all right, this this will be launching 
in August. Uh, a lot of folks out there, you know, working on food plots, uh, whether that's doing summer maintenance or, or fall food plot planning, that kind of stuff. And so I know you've, you've done some research in, involved in a couple different things that we're going to talk about here today. But one of them specifically is, is kind of the um, maintenance or, or mowing of perennial food plots. And, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that they're planting perennial food plots, with clover and alfalfa, chicory, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, it's very common for, for those folks to want to mow them during the summertime for, for weed control and, and other reasons. And, and you guys decided to, I, I guess, to, to look at that and, and really dive into whether or not that that's beneficial. So I guess I guess my first question is just what what led you guys to really want to look into that to start with? So I was initially involved with uh, some of the work that Dr. Harper, um, he's been working on this for a while, did back in 2016 as a technician. And at the time, we were mainly interested or he was mainly interested in just looking at forage quality, because that's the main thing that you hear folks say is that deer are going to select that young, nutritious growth. And we have to mow our clovers and alfalfas every so often during the growing season in order to maintain that young, nutritious growth. However, um, this, although this makes sense based on the fact that we see farmers cutting hay and uh, mowing grass in order to maintain that forage quality for cattle, these broadleaf plants don't grow the exact same way that grasses do. And so he initially just wanted to see if the mowing had any effect on nutrient quality. And in fact, it did not. The forage quality of the young parts of alfalfa and clover after you mow it, he, he found either white or red clover are essentially the same whether you mow it or don't mow it. And so that kind of led down a path of, okay, well, let's look at different things within this, you know, idea of mowing. There's various reasons why people mow. So the first one was forage quality, figured out it didn't affect forage quality. So from there, wanted to look at biomass. And again, I wasn't involved in the initial work looking at this, but, um, they sampled some areas where they had mowed and didn't mow, and they looked at the forage quality as well as the quantity of forage being produced and found that, again, just like in that original study, lo looking at just white clover, whenever we look at all these different uh, varieties of perennial forage, the quality does not differ whether we mow or don't mow when we look at just the young plant parts that deer are selecting. However, we did find or uh, we found and also in the original work found that there is a significant difference in the biomass of forage. So whenever you look at just the young forage, there is much less forage available in the sections where we had mowed compared to the sections that we didn't mow. So you're reducing the biomass. And a lot of people confuse that because, again, they think that if you cut it, you're going to increase the forage quality. You're going to have more young forage out there. And it is true that if you cut it, you're removing a lot of that old forage. And so you're going to have a higher proportion of young forage because it's simply shorter and more of that growth is going to be uh, new that's out there. But that plants take you're taking away a lot of the plant's resources whenever you mow it. So although you do have old material out there, if you don't mow, the plant is able to produce even more young material when you don't mow compared to whenever you continuously mow the field. So essentially, again, when you look at just the young forage, the quality is the same and the quantity is the same or is, is greater whenever you don't mow. So um, essentially both those things led to, okay, don't, don't mow your food plots, you know, in the summertime, if you don't need to. Before we get any further, you mentioned as far as the quality didn't improve, what, what specifically were you looking at, I guess, to measure quality right. on these? So we looked at uh, crude protein, phosphorus and calcium and crude protein is the one that, most people typically look at as, you know, that's that's generally considered the limiting factor uh, for deer, especially during the summertime whenever bucks are growing antlers and does are uh, lactating. And so we looked at the crude protein in those plants, but we also looked at phosphorus and calcium because both of those nutrients are important for um, processes for these animals. And, and perhaps we might change those with mowing. Um, we didn't find that we did though. So, um, but again, crude protein is the the one that like in the um, quality whitetails article, it's the one that we highlighted, but regardless of what nutrient that we looked at, um, the results were the same. We, we did not see a significant difference between the mode and the unmode. Okay. Gotcha. So crude protein then no, no improvement in, in crude protein from, from mowing versus unmowing. Right. 
Absolutely. And, so, and, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So going from there, um, in 2020, we had a couple different things that we wanted to test. So we, we kind of had this base knowledge of, okay, mowing didn't change the, the forage quality and mowing reduced the forage quantity. So there's a couple other reasons why people mow though. And we, and we wanted to test those. Number one would be weed control. A lot of folks talk about mowing for weed control. And I, I, I think I know that me personally on my family property, I've mowed our clover plenty of times just with the thought that, okay, this is reducing the coverage of weeds. Um, and the other thing that we wanted to test is it, it's related to the forage quality question, but um, more indirectly, you see folks all the time say, well, I've put cameras out in my food plots and after I mow, the deer just flock to that, you know, fresh growth and, um, and they, don't, they don't use the stuff that hasn't been cut nearly as frequently. So we wanted to actually measure deer use. And we did that in two ways. We measured deer use with cameras and then we also measured deer use of the plot um, in terms of forage consumed so that we could see both, okay, are there more deer that are just out in the plot after we mow versus not mowing? And then also how much forage are they consuming um, that's out in the plot? So uh, to do the, the, the first part, like I said, we used exclusion cages and just looked at production of forage by month. And then to look at just the number of deer that were actually in the plot, we set up trail cameras in each of these plots that we um, mowed and then not mowed as well. And then to look at the weed control question, um, we measured the coverage of vegetation across the plot. So um, essentially, we we conducted what we call a transect, which is essentially just a, a measurement of vegetation at different points. And then we just summed up, OK, how many of these points had weeds and how many didn't so that we could get a rough coverage of weeds in the plot versus the forages that we're trying to grow. So what, I'm, I'm curious, what what I guess did the the actual... The, the portion of the study that was looking at actual deer preference uh, with monitoring deer usage, what, what did that reveal? Right. So um, we were a little surprised with these results. Um, we, we kind of had the thought that we would see equal deer use of the mode and the unmode because um, we're looking at this in about a four acre food plot. So it's a fairly large perennial plot that, um, you know, except for very late in the summer, whenever those forages start to go senescent, generally has a lot of forage that's available for the deer. However, we actually saw a pretty large reduction in deer use of the plot where we had mowed. And so um, essentially the deer were using the plot where we did not mow about 53% more than the plot where we had mowed. So again, just to emphasize that mowing reduced the amount of deer that were using that plot. Similarly, whenever we looked at the pounds of forage that were being eaten by deer per acre, we saw the exact same result. Um, we saw much greater forage consumption in the unmowed compared to the mowed portion. And again, we we're able to separate the consumption from the production by using exclusion cages. So, you know, not only is it producing more forage, but deer are also eating more forage whenever you don't mow the plot. So, um, this makes intuitive sense, though, if you think about the way that deer, you know, make decisions about foraging. Um, if, if they can go somewhere where there's a lot of food and it's equal quality to somewhere where there's not as much food. I mean, it, it's pretty obvious to me that they're going to go to the spot that has the greater quantity so that they can fill up their room and, you know, more quickly and get back in the woods and get bedded down um, compared to eating somewhere where you have this really short mowed off perennial forage. Now, was there a point, I guess, after mowing a certain time period where that, that plot kind of bounced back and, and you saw, you know, the deer numbers kind of level off or, or is it just going to stay behind the, the unmowed plot for an extended period of time? Or? So we didn't actually look at that. Um, we just looked at it summed across the uh, entire growing season. However, I can say that whenever we looked at the forage biomass, um, Typically, um, and whenever we mowed, I, sh I should have mentioned this earlier, we were mowing these once a month. So typically we we're mowing on the first day of the month and we collected data every two weeks. So we would mow, collect data, collect data, and then mow again. Um, and that was during June, July, and August. Um, but whenever we looked at the forage biomass, um, typically the forage biomass two weeks after we mowed was much, much lower than the forage biomass um, in the unmowed. 
because, and which makes sense. You have less time for it to regrow. And generally, by, by four weeks after mowing, they're a little closer together. So I would expect, um, I would probably expect that, yes, after, you know, four weeks, your deer use is probably going to level back out. But um, again, we didn't specifically look at deer use by period. Um, but at least with, in terms of forage quality, about a month after you mow your forage um, biomass that's available out there is um, bumping back up to be pretty similar to the areas that we did not mow. Right. But what most people do whenever they see that forage biomass getting up there again is they hook up their bush hog and go mow it again. <laughs> and so, go mow again, yeah. Which, I mean, I mean, and that's, that's what most people do. So <laughs> yep. really you're just, you know, probably having this, you know, repelling effect on deer every, every month or so whenever you hook up that bush hog because um, you're just reducing the amount of forage that's available in that field. So, so based on what, what y'all seen through the study, is there ever a time to go out there with the, with the bush hog and, and mow a perennial food plot like this? Right. So we do recommend mowing perennial plots once a year during late summer. So um, usually in August, um, August through early September, and, and this, this varies a little bit depending on the, the, you know, the region that you're in. But during that time of year, whenever your plot generally just looks terrible, it's it's senescent, it's been hot and dry for, you know, a month or two, um, which in this part of the world, typically that happens in August. Um, we do recommend going out and mowing and basically just mowing the top off of those, um, mostly off of the weed species that may be out in the field to prevent them from going to seed. You're not necessarily trying to mow the clover so much or the alfalfa, um, so much as you're just trying to knock back and prevent those species from going to seed and also to prepare the plot for spraying, because generally we recommend spraying the plot at about that same time. Um, and it, it varies a little bit. And of course, what you spray and when you spray varies depending on what's in the field. But generally about the time that you're thinking about planting your cool season plots is a good time to go ahead and spray um, your perennial plots as well. So if you mow a few weeks before you're planning on planting your cool season plots, um, then you can go out and spray it at about that same time um, and allow a little bit of regrowth. And that that typically is is sufficient to control most of the weeds that you're concerned with. Um, and, and the good thing about the herbicides that we're choosing to use on these plots is not only are you um, typically controlling those warm season weeds um, before they produce seed, you're also, um, especially if you use herbicide like Pursuit or Emazethapir, you're um, able to actually have some pre-emergent activity, which will be good to simply prevent those cool season weeds from germinating. So um, that one-time mowing of the plot in late summer is sufficient. And again, that's during the time when it's producing the least amount of forage anyway, because typically unless you've had a really wet summer or you're in a more northern climate, um, your, your plot's not going to be as productive that time of year anyway. Gotcha. So leave, leave the bush hog at home and, uh, control your weeds with, with the herbicide regime then is, is what I'm hearing, which, um, you know, really that, that, that should be good news to, to most food plotters. I mean, that not only are you going to get better results, uh, more deer usage following, following your all's recommendation, but you know, you're going to save money. You're going to reduce those fuel costs, reduce wear and tear on your equipment and, you know, may save some wildlife as well in the process by, by keeping those bush hogs in the barn when there's a lot of young wildlife out there on the ground. So. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and one of the other things too, that, you know, you mentioned young wildlife that I think should be emphasized with this mowing is, um, you know, one of the kind of extra benefits that you get is the structure in those plots is much, much, much better for especially turkey poults if you leave um, the bush hog at home. Because if you're just continually mowing it short, um, you know, really you're just exposing them to not only greater heat, but also, you know, greater predation risk. Um, because those perennial plots can be a great place for a hen to take her brood and, um, and again, if you have some some plants growing there that some might term as weeds, but um, plants such as I think in the article we mentioned uh, ragweed and pokeweed, which those are fairly common to see popping up in a perennial plot. If if you leave a few of those out there within the plot, that added structure can really enhance your brooding cover. And um, and again, those are both deer food. So 
why would we be worried about controlling deer food in the plot? <laughs> right. Yeah. It was, that brings up a good, a good point is, you know, weeds aren't always, or quote unquote weeds aren't, aren't always a bad thing in the food plots. And, and we can get kind of carried away trying to get this pristine, you know, perfectly manicured plot. We want it to look like uh, an ag production type of uh, plot when that's, when we're managing for deer and other wildlife, it's, it's really not necessary. And, and I think some of the, the research you guys have done shows that, that those quote, again, quote unquote weeds are just as, if not more attractive to deer than, than some of the species that we're actually out there planting. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the two that, um, that I always kind of chuckle at a little bit are, uh, horseweed and ragweed, which horseweed is also known as mare's tail. And there's a bunch of farmers out there that really don't like it because, you know, it is uh, one of those that tends to get glyphosate resistant just because it produces so many seed. And of course, we don't want it to overtake a plot. But um, I was in a food plot the other day on a property that I was sampling and the deer were eating the horseweed just as much as they were eating the perennial clover that was there, which, again, we have herbicide options we can use to control those species, um, especially, you know, either early in the spring or uh, later in the summer, you know, depending on the exact species. So it's not like we're just letting it go go wild and allowing all these weeds to go to seed and, and you know, take over our plot per se. But having a few of those extra plants out there, you get some additional forage, some additional structure within the plot. And again, you're just producing more forage while in the end of the day, you're still able to control them. Um, all you would really be doing with a mower is just keeping them lower to the ground. And um, that's that's another Thing that I wanted to hit on, you know, like I said, we also measured weed coverage across the plots. And interestingly enough, mowing did not decrease the coverage of weeds. And if anything, um, our data kind of suggests that especially later in the summer, we actually may have ended up with a little bit more weed pressure in the mowed plot um, because we were just continually setting back and opening up growing space for potentially weeds to, to grow, especially grass weeds. Um, in the plots that we mowed frequently, um, some species like foxtail and crabgrass were very prevalent, especially towards the end of the growing season. Now, again, we have herbicide options like clethanum that we can use to easily control those, but mowing didn't reduce the coverage of those weeds. It just lowers their height, and so it may look like a cleaner plot that has less weeds in it, but again, in reality, you're not decreasing the coverage. You're just making them shorter. Gotcha. You, you've already touched on a few of these along the way, but while we're here, just, I guess, kind of go over some of some of the herbicide options that are out there for controlling these perennial plots uh, based on the, the different types of weeds you may be encountering. Right. So there's um, there's a few different ones that we use really frequently. Um, the first one, like I like I mentioned before, clethodim, um is a great chemical for controlling uh, grass weeds and plots. Um, it's typically not the best if you have perennial species um, of grass. It's not something that you'd want to go out and say, try to kill a fescue field with. But in most of your uh, cool season plots, uh, perennial plots, assuming that you have controlled those perennial wheat, um, grass weeds before you planted it, uh, which you should do, um, most of your problem species are going to be annuals. And so clethodim is a great chemical that whenever those, especially whenever they're they're young and short, which is a big key for any herbicide that you're using um, that's going to be in a perennial plot, especially, you know, the, these herbicides are not necessarily designed to kill weeds um, that are greater than, you know, a few inches tall, even in some cases, um, which it depends on the species. So you've got to read the labels on that, but um, really making sure that you hit those weeds whenever they're small, um, you're going to get much better control. But for grass weeds, we use clethodim a lot. That's a great chemical. There's several different uh, trade names that it's sold under. Um, that's, that's a good one. That's really readily available for grass weeds in terms of broadleaf weeds. Um, probably the chemical that we use the most is pursuit, which is, um, that's the, uh, trade name for it, but the, the chemical name is imazethapir. And that's one that a lot of people look at and they look up online cause they may not have heard of it before. And <laughs> the first thing that people always do is say, oh my gosh, it's 300 or $400 <laughs> for a, for a gallon. Yeah. You know, which if they're if you're just used to using glyphosate, then, yeah, that's a that's an expensive chemical. But um, you're only using four to six ounces per acre of that chemical. So in reality, that gallon jug will last you 
most folks probably many, many years. Um, so really it's a, it's a fairly economical chemical um, that's not very costly that will control most of the problematic um, broadleaf. And in fact, it has a lot of activity on those grass weeds too. And uh, one of the nice things with mesethapyr is that it does have some residual soil activity. So let's just say that you, again, spray it late summer, but you sprayed it a little bit before some of those cool seasons would start popping up. Well, you're going to have some residual control in the soil that is going to prevent some of those cool season weeds from coming and growing in your plot. Um, again, timing it to where you, you know, hopefully catch most of them like right after they've emerged is probably best. But having having some of that residual activity is good. Um, another, I think there's 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 a there's a few others that people use. A lot of folks will use 2,4-DB, or it's commonly sold as Beauty Rack. Um, that is a fairly good chemical, but it does not have the, um, it does not control nearly as many species as the mesethapyr. So before you just, you know, run out and grab this or that chemical, it's definitely important to be able to recognize what your problematic weeds are, um, before you, you start looking for chemicals because, um, mesethapyr kills a lot of things. Um, beauty rack does kill several broadleaf species and it's recommended a lot because it's, I think because it's a lot cheaper. Um, but it does not have the um, as much as many species that it controls. Um, one other that I'll mention is um, is uh, Bassagran is the trade name, and um, Bassagran is a chemical that controls um, especially sedges. It, it controls several other species, but um, if you have a lot of sedges in your plot, which you know you can look at and recognize it from a grass by looking at whether it has um, edges or not. They have a triangle-shaped stem. and uh, But if you have sedges in your plot, Bassagran is a great chemical to control them. So um, between those four herbicides, you should be able to do a lot in your perennial food plots. Um, and again, the, the two that we most commonly use together and apply on pretty much every single perennial food plot that we manage is um, clethodim and, and mesethapyr. Those are those are really the two the two go tos that I would recommend for folks. Good stuff. Any other takeaways, I guess, from this part of the research before we uh, kind of transition over to to the Nebraska side of it? I don't think so. Um, I think you know the the big key takeaway, aside from just recognizing that you know you don't need to mow your food plot all the time, um, is just recognizing that. And I, I think a lot of folks get caught up in this. Um, you know, making sure that their plot looks clean. But I think folks need to take a step back and just recognize the objectives that they're trying to meet with that plot. And during the summertime, you know, during that May and June and July period, um, these perennial plots can provide a tremendous amount of forage. Um, and, and a lot of people like perennial plots because they can hunt over them in the fall too. And so it's, it's nice to have that combination of attraction during hunting season and forage production during um, lactation and gestation and, and antler growth. Um, but in order to maximize the amount of forage that's out there, you know, you got to get past the idea that you have to mow it so, um, every few weeks to where it looks like your lawn. Um, we're really able to produce a lot of forage in those plots without mowing. So um, that, that really is the big takeaway. Yeah. And like I said, that should, that should be a, a freeing idea to, to most people, you know, like I said, you're not only going to save your time and your money and wear and tear on equipment. So Absolutely. Yeah, keep, keep, keep the bush hogs up. And as you've already mentioned there a couple, or you've already referred to there a couple times, um, there is an, an article in the summer issue of quality whitetails magazine, uh, that, that Mark was involved in as well as Bonner Powell, Bonner Powell and Craig Harper that, uh, that outlines this whole, um, this whole project and, and their findings and stuff. So if you're a, if you're an NDA member, be sure to check out that article in the summer, summer episode or the summer issue. But let's, let's kind of shift gears here and, and talk about brassicas. Cause you guys have been involved in, in another project that kind of another uh, myth busting project, I guess you could call it. Um, Cause a lot of folks out there and, and I've thought this all along myself, but you know, there's a common belief that, um, these brassicas get sweeter after a frost, which is why the deer seem to really be attracted to them, you know, in the late season. And that that's something I've heard for years and just always assumed to be true. But but you guys decided to uh, put it to the test. What what led to uh, 
to questioning this one. Right. So this one, this one came from just some conversations that uh, uh, Dr. Harper and I had. Um, it was something that he had been interested in for a while um, because, you know, for a lot of folks all around the country, um, you plant brassicas as a some you know a plot to hunt over in the late season. Um, they can produce a ton of forage. I mean, literally tons of forage in a very short period of time relative to other cool season plots. And if deer eat them in your area, I mean, there's there's aside from the obvious corn and soy, you know, standing corn and soybeans, um, they can really really be a strong attraction during that late season time of year. Um, but you hear all the time that you need to have frost for those forages to start being attractive. And, and that's oftentimes thought to be the reason why in the deep South that a lot of deer don't eat brassicas as much is because uh, it doesn't get cold enough to, um, you know, to quote what everyone says, turn the starches into sugar. And um, that, that really kind of spawned that, that idea to, you know, Hey, let's, let's collect some of these forages and see how, the sugar levels and the starch levels and levels of other uh, various nutrients changed before and after frost. Before we dive into the experiment itself, for those who may not be familiar with the term brassicas, what, what plant species are we talking about here? Right. So, so technically brassicas um, include those plant species such as rape, kale and turnips um, and and radishes are are not technically brassicas. They're they're in a little bit separate uh, separate terminology, but typically they're lumped into those um, leafy greens that produce that that generally, at least in the case of turnips and radishes, produce a large tuber that um, that you know eat are eaten by deer, and they also will eat the leaves of those species. And in the case of rape and kale, you're typically looking more for that leaf production. Whereas with turnips and, and radishes, um, the deer will eat both the leaves as well as those uh, tubers. Gotcha. So, yeah. and, the, and these are typically plants that people um, usually plant in, you know, they're cool season plantings that you would typically plant in, in August um, in most parts of the country. And then, you know, plan to hunt over again whenever it gets really cold outside in maybe November and December. So, how did you set this experiment up? How did, what exactly? Uh, how exactly did you lay it out and what were you kind of testing or measuring? Right. So with this one, um, had a little bit, I guess, simpler design than, uh, than the, the clover study. Um, with this, with this project, we simply went out and collected, um, we had a few different food plots. I had, um, a few brassica food plots on my family farm and we also had several in Tennessee and we simply went out and collected, uh, the leaves as well as the roots of, um, brassica, these brassica species. And, uh, specifically we looked at kale, radish, and turnip. And so we went out and collected those species, um, before a frost. And then we also went and collected the species after it had frosted several times. So we didn't just, you know, go collect it the first time there was, you know, a tinge of frost on it. We, we waited till it had frosted enough to where, you know, it, sh it should have seen any change that it was going to see. Um, in terms of the levels of the um, various nutrients. And so we went and collected the leaves as well as the roots in the case of radish and turnip um, in order to see, okay, maybe the leaves change and the roots don't, or perhaps it's the other way around. Um, and then we sent these into a lab that conducted a nutrient analysis. And specifically, we were looking at levels of crude protein, acid detergent fiber, which ADF is a measure of uh, simply how palatable um, or, or how, excuse me, not how palatable, how easily digested that the forage is. Um, you want a lower level of acid detergent fiber. Um, that means that it, it is more digestible. We also looked at simple sugars, which, um, you know, should indicate how sweet that the brassica would be, um, whether either the leaf or the root would be after it is frosted. Um, we also looked at starch levels which those starch levels, again, in reference to what most people say, the sugars or the starches turn to sugars. We figured, OK, if, it, if that is true, we would see lower levels of starch and higher levels of sugar after it had frosted. And then finally, we also looked at sulfur because um, we, we've seen a few people reference where that perhaps the sulfur levels are changing, too, because undeniably, if you go out in a field 
that has brassicas in most locations, the deer don't eat them as much until it gets cold. Um, that, I mean, I've, I've watched deer in, in October in North Carolina before frost eat turnip leaves um, and, and radish leaves, but, but you really don't tend to see that really strong att- attraction until after it gets really cold outside. Um, and so we, you know, we thought that, of course, like most people say, that something was probably going on within the plants that were causing that attraction. Um, after a frost. Yeah. So, so really y'all went into this one, just trying to confirm the belief rather than, rather than going in thinking, well, we're going to bust this. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and like I say, we didn't, you know, have a, it, we, we collected leaves from several sites. Um, but they, you know, these were just food plots that we had planted for, you know, demonstration purposes. And in my case, it was <laughs> literally off of a, I think I, I collected the leaves, uh, after I, killed a deer the evening after I killed a deer and there was uh, or the morning after I killed a deer and there was frost on the leaves. So, um, you know, th- these, these were just out of normal food plots that were planted for, you know, for hunting for the most part. Yeah. And what, what did you guys find? What, you know, when you started doing the analysis on these? Right. So, um, somewhat interestingly, we, uh, we did not see that massive change that we thought we would see. So, um, crude protein in, in, the kale, the radish, and then the turnip um, stayed fairly consistent, whether before or after a frost. There were there were some minor fluctuation, but but really not you know enough to to um, to really believe that the that the frost changed it um, because you will see just changes in nutrient levels um, over time and based on the plants that you sampled. Um, in in terms of the digestibility of the plant, again, we did not see any difference in either the leaves or the roots or tubers from any of these plants. Um, but the simple sugars was really the one that we were interested in because that was the one that, again, everyone says that they get sweeter after a frost. And we did see slightly elevated levels of those simple sugars in the kale, in the leaves of the radish, and in the leaves of the turnip. However, the radish root and the turnip tuber did not change at all. We saw virtually the exact same level of simple sugar between the radish root and the turnip tuber, which was really interesting. Um, we, we thought we would see a change there because, again, you, you hear people talk all the time about how they start hitting them more after frost. Um, and interestingly, the starch levels, um, they changed some, but it was not consistently. So with the radish root, we actually saw more starch after frost, whereas with the turnip tuber, we saw less fr- less starch after frost. So really, you know, not not any sort of strong trend to make us believe that, oh yeah, the frost really changed the starch levels and there's a lot more sugar in these plants after it got cold. Um, because again, the, the sugar levels stayed about the same. Um, and we really didn't see a strong trend with sulfur either way, um, looking at the leaves or the roots. So essentially, we don't think that the frost was really doing anything to these plants. We saw a few little minor changes here and there, but um, nothing that was big enough to make us or consistent enough to make us think, oh, yeah, this is what's going on. The deer are hitting uh, these plants after frost because they're getting sweeter. So any any guesses or theories then on why these deer seem to prefer brassicas during the late season? Yes. Uh, so we do, actually. Um, <laughs> the, the simple answer is uh, that the roots and tubers of these plants are extremely high in simple sugars. And so. Um, Later in the season, whenever it gets cold, um, you know, well, let me back up. So early in the season, deer are typically selecting plants that may be higher in protein um, because there's bodily processes going on that require higher levels of protein. And that's why, you know, right now you go in a soybean field and the deer are just flocking to it because soybeans tend to have high levels of protein. And uh, when uh, whenever we look at the the root and tuber of these species, they actually have fairly low levels of protein. Um, not, not terribly low, but they're not, not anything spectacular, but they have really, really high levels of simple sugar. So when we look at radishes, for instance, they have about 50% um, simple sugar in their roots and turnips have almost 60% simple sugar in their roots. So during the time of year in the late season, the deer are really craving a high energy diet. And simple sugars are fairly high in energy, um, whereas the deer are not necessarily selecting for that protein as strongly. So um, we think that deer are simply, 
you know, following their stomachs based on the time of year and they're hitting a food source that is high in simple sugar during the time of year whenever they require that. Um, so really, it's just the fact that we have a high energy food source that's planted there. Um, it's not necessarily anything about it tasting better after a frost. Um, one thing that I will mention that's nice with the brassicas is if deer do eat them before frost, which in some cases, especially with the leaves of some of these plants, and especially I know in my personal experience, uh, radishes especially, um, they'll eat those leaves fairly early in the season. And uh, those leaves of both kale, radish, and turnip are actually extremely high in crude protein. Um, all of them are a good bit above 30%. And uh, in fact, kale and radish leaves are almost 40% crude protein. So um, that's really, really high, much higher than what deer even require during any time of the year. So, you know, you, you, you are planting a plot that has both that high protein as well as those high levels of simple sugars for later in the season. Um, and that's one of the nice things with brassicas that you can get. But, but yeah, essentially the deer are just hitting those brassicas late season because it's a food source that's very high in simple sugars, which are high in energy, which is what they need to stay warm and stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. I just have uh, just one, one experience planting brassicas and back when I was in Kentucky and, and they did, I mean, they started hitting it early, uh, the leaves, the foliage, you know, they were hitting that by, by mid September. But like you said, once, once it got later in the season, uh, it was, they just destroyed it. And then, you know, they, they ate it down to the dirt and then, then started working on the tubers. But, uh, but yeah, yeah absolutely. So I guess what's the theory then and why in some Southern areas here, I guess, or, or it really seems to be location dependent, but why deer just don't show any interest in, in some cases to these brassica plots, here in the south is it just simply because the weather's not getting bad enough to kind of trigger that that drive for more sugars or is there a theory there that's the that's the million dollar question <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wish we could come up with an answer and you know have a have a call in and you know tell people oh yeah this here's your property the deer are gonna eat brassicas there and they're not gonna eat them here or whatever but uh you know we really don't know that um i think that it certainly has to do with um, the weather factor that they may not in some southern areas, especially, you know, require a diet as high in energy compared to, you know, deer in more northerly areas where it is getting colder. Right. Um, it also certainly has to do with some level to forage availability. I mean, if you have very poor forage availability and no other, you know, plots planted and there's nothing for deer to eat, um, I think you're probably going to have more luck with brassicas compared to, um, especially in the deep south, an area that may have other food plot options for deer. Um, but really, deer deer can just be finicky. And, and we see differences um, even in, in native plants that deer eat um, between locations. Um, I know one that this that this summer I've seen a lot of is giant ragweed. You'll go to I've, I've been visited properties where they're just hammering giant ragweed and I've been to properties where they hardly eat it at all. Yeah. Why that is, I have no clue. <laughs> it's it's some combination of, you know, just how much forage is available for them, and I guess what tastes better to them. I, I you know, there's yeah. there's a multitude of reasons why deer make these foraging choices that they do. Um, it's definitely for the most. I mean, it's it's definitely rooted in them uh, balancing their diet and seeking those forages that are going to meet their needs. But um, when it comes to an individual plant, there can definitely be some variation in whether they hit it or not. And I think that's why we see um, such difference in brassica um, and whether the deer like it or not. Um, the best thing I can recommend is if, if people are interested in brassicas and never done it before, don't plant the full, whole farm your first year. Plant just a small area, see how they like them. And um, like I say, they're, they're a great food source because they do provide um, a lot of forage and they can be excellent for hunting in the late season, um, especially in more northern areas, but even in some areas of the south. But um, if deer don't eat them in your area, then there's not much that you can do to to make them eat them. Right, right, so yeah. um, I think it's just kind of one of those things that it varies based on location, but we don't really know for sure, unfortunately. Well, man, that is uh, that is great information. And uh, I appreciate you taking time out here today to to talk to us on this food plot stuff. like. Like we talked about uh, before we actually started recording, I, 
I definitely want to get you back on it sometime to, to dive into force stand improvement. I know you've done a lot of work in that area. And uh, originally, I was going to incorporate that into this one, but that's just a, a topic unto itself, man. I, you know, we can we can spend easily spend an entire episode talking for stand improvement. So uh, we'll we'll dive into that. I guess when it's more more timely, um, maybe after deer season. But but I appreciate yeah, this you. Is, uh, <laughs> you can kill trees this time of year, but it's a lot more fun to kill them in the winter. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> <Right> especially <now. laughs> yeah, especially right now. Um, it's uh. Yeah, you don't want to don't want to spend any more time out there in midday right now than you have to. But which is a good take home. Don't go mow your clover when it's hot. That's right. <laughs> just wait. <laughs> That's right. Mark just made your life easier as a food plotter. Right there, you can uh, leave the tractor and bush hog in the barn for now. But yeah, uh, I appreciate it, Mark. Appreciate your time and uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like I say, you know, none of this would we wouldn't have any of this information if it wasn't for. Um, the folks that have worked on it with me and, you know, my lab mate Bonner has done a lot of this with me. He was involved in both those projects. And then obviously Dr. Harper's, um, you know, <laughs> the brains behind the operation coming up with a lot of the stuff and um, helping us look at different things. So definitely would be uh, be missing out by not mentioning those two um, for for setting all this up and helping with everything. Yeah. Now, are you guys uh, active on social media? Is there anywhere that people can kind of follow along with what y'all are doing or? Uh, so we don't have a, like a lab social media page. I'll occasionally post stuff on, um, on my, my personal page, but we don't, we don't have like a lab page where we're posting things. Um, uh, we, we've considered getting into that space, but you know, there's so many great resources between the Mississippi state deer lab, the UF deer lab, um, obviously NDA that's posting stuff all the time. So, um, we haven't exactly got into that space just yet, but, uh, gotcha. Just did, did, didn't want to leave you out if you had a had a plug <laughs> yeah. to give. No, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate it. And it's yeah. something we've talked about doing, but you know, <laughs> there's there's a lot of good information out there, and uh, like like say we uh, you know try to share anything that we're doing with uh, with folks through either you know y'all's website or the uh, Quality Whitetails magazine. So um, we definitely try to make the information accessible to folks. Yeah, yeah, we appreciate that. Yeah, you guys have done numerous uh, articles and stuff for us there for Quality Whitetails and and on the website, and uh, always enjoy being able to to share that information. Good stuff. All right, guys, that concludes our interview with Mark Turner. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season Three Sixty Five podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcast. Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us. Uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. And you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And, uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So, Check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.